it's something that has to be picked up by working near practitioners, people who have done the things you want to do, and you will, for lack of a better word, essentially absorb a lot of that knowledge. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm so excited that you're listening today. My interview with Zach Slayback that you're about to hear covers a couple important topics. Zach is back on the podcast after more than two years away, once again to talk about selecting a career, making proper choices, and his new book, How to Get Ahead. If you happened to be at the first Going Deep Summit, you would have heard Zach give the closing keynote on this topic. It was fire. It was captivating. He brought an amazing energy, and it is clearly a topic, a mission that he has a ton of passion for. And so I'm very excited to not only be endorsing his book, but bring him back on the program to talk about how to start a career properly, how this book fits into his personal business plans, and the topic of mimetic desire, an idea popularized and brought to light by Rene Girard that I have been wrapping my own mind around for the last year and a half or so. There's going to be a ton of value here, and I really do believe Believe that sharing his book with anyone entering the workforce or making their first major change will be really valuable. So check that out as well on Amazon or wherever else you get your books. But in the meantime, here is Zach Slayback. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Zach. Why do most career books suck? (laughs) (laughs) They're written by two types of people. The first is what I would call a box checker. This is essentially a bureaucrat, right? This is someone who they haven't had to find a job themselves in years. They haven't had to actually help a real person find a job in years. They may have read or written something like, what color is your parachute in like the 80s or the 90s? And... They're in a job, usually an HR job or like a guidance counselor kind of job, where they're ostensibly supposed to help people get jobs, but there's no real feedback loop with the real world for them. So these are the kinds of people that they run resume workshops, they run cover letter workshops, and those things matter to a certain extent, but they're much less important than people think, right? So those that's one category of books. Uh, These are the career books that tell you how to rewrite your resume, how to find a specific kind of job, how to do like things that you would expect out of a guidance counselor. The other category is one that is a little closer to my heart uh, because I think they're more fun, uh, but they're still not particularly helpful. And those are books that are written by hacks and only hacks use hacks. These are books that will teach you how to wake up at 3.30 a.m. every day and get everything done by 6.30 in the morning, and then you will only eat plums for the rest of the day after you're done intermittent fasting, and how that, that is the key to success and career productivity. And these things, you know, they're, they're fun to listen to on podcasts. They're fun to read on blogs. And we'll be getting into your top secret diet here in a couple oh, of minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were just talking about my weird hackish diet. Yeah, yeah. Um, But they're not particularly helpful when you're like looking for something out of a book in particular, when you're trying to actually build a process for your career, right? You want to actually build some kind of system. Yeah. Um, These are not systematic approaches at all. That's their problem. There's there's a reason why hack in particular means both a shortcut and a poorly trained practitioner. 
Right. So this has been a through line throughout basically your entire professional careers, helping other people get into great careers, understand how to do it, not waste time, not waste energy going in the wrong direction. And I was, I was listening back, you know, we did our first podcast together more than two years ago. And it was like the same vein running through all that. I'm really curious, like, why is this the thing that you have latched onto and, and found the most meaning behind working on? Uh, one, I think it's because approaching a career for most people can actually be more systematic than people think, right? Uh, and I like systems. I, I'm just wired. I'm an abstract thinker, systems thinker. When I brought into an organization, usually one of the first thing, uh, things I do is I try to set up systems or I try to figure out what informal systems are already there that we can actually like make explicit, right? That's part of it. And part of it, too, is almost as if I am fueled by a deep desire to destroy people who are misleading people and hurting people, even if they're doing it uh, out of like a good spot in their heart. Yeah. <laughs> and the career space in particular, going back to your original question, is just full of the wrong advice. I grew up, you know, in a community where I didn't have uh, a lot of access to people who worked in any career, any kind of career that I'm interacting with now. I didn't know many like business people, quote unquote, growing up. So for me, getting career advice was either a function of Google or listening to people who ended up giving me advice that was largely outdated or unhelpful. So it's correcting the wrongs and helping people see the invisible systems that are actually governing a lot of their life. And really at like the core of it, the way I interpret not just you in the realm of career advice, but all of our interactions, is you're one of the deeply kind people who basically has a much lower degree of superficial kindness. So like basically what you're saying <laughs> is like the, like the the nicety, the like, oh, I don't want to like step on a toe or hurt a feeling, you completely ignore because you're so aimed at the deep kindness of, of the pain of like a kid who took well-intended advice, but uninformed advice, and then going down a path that was not fulfilling and not meaningful to them. Yeah, I mean, I'd rather a lot. A lot of people aren't told the advice that would actually be helpful to them because I think people are afraid to step on toes. They're afraid to offend people. They're afraid to come off as somewhat rude, right? And I'm happy to sacrifice like basic politeness for actually helping people get to where they need to be. Yeah, I I sense that very deeply. Like I think that there's a degree to which you can miss the deep kindness that you intend when you're struck with the initial, I may maybe call it like abrasiveness. I don't know if that's necessarily how you process it, but like we've had a couple interactions where like there was one time where I was incredibly poorly dressed and you're like, man, you really look like a college junior. Meanwhile, I'm like trying to portray myself as a business owner. <laughs> and then another time I was like pretty tired and you're like, you have some serious bags under eyes. You should get some sleep. And like superficially, it's like, oh, that kind of like stings to hear. But you're not saying that to like, put me down you're saying that as like a i interpret at least as a well-intentioned like hey get your shit together watson i mean that that's true and part of that is like our personal dynamic and the dynamic i have between with people with whom i i have like peer relationships as well i i admit i come off strongly to a lot of people um and part of my own personal growth and development is keeping that edge and this is this is feedback I've gotten from the teams I've worked on. This is really helpful feedback for me to get in the feedback loops that I, I've developed in my world. Keeping that edge, but also not 
not being like, hey, dude, you look super tired. Go <laughs> go take a nap. Or, yeah. Hey, you look like a slob. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there, there's there's a push and pull to it. But like, I appreciate it. like that. It's it's also I guess maybe it's like reflective of my mindset too. Is like like there was truth to it. It it wasn't just like baseless claims like are so common in the career advice. Yeah, I, pe- people need to put aside the superfluous niceties and understand like those are assumed, right? Like when you get into the the relationship where you're talking to somebody else uh, about, you know, how they can get ahead in their career, the fact that they've come to you and they're talking to you about it and you've already kind of like developed this relationship means that you should be willing to put aside those niceties and just move forward uh, with the actual you want to call it advice, tactics, whatever you want to call it. Explain to people what mimetic desire is. Uh, so one of the reasons that I find a lot of the career advice out there to be particularly unhelpful, um, or just advice in general, right? And even introspection tools, when people ask themselves, what do I want? So we're not very good at knowing what we want. It's really hard. Yeah, it's really, really, really hard. So there's this idea that comes from it's most often credited to this French, I guess I'd call him a philosopher, a sociologist, René Girard, that the defining characteristic of like humans and human societies is that we are mimetic creatures. And what he means by that is we imitate each other. And a lot of that imitation comes down to our desires. We desire something because it is desired by other people. And as it becomes desired by more people, it becomes more desirable, right? Just think of any high status good. Right. Well, what makes it high status is the fact that it is desired by other people. Now, Girard's built an entire whole philosophy and worldview around this, which uh, I would strongly suggest. Uh, the, the book I suggest in the further reading of my book is uh, a great little book called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Um, at, at his core, Girard is really talking a lot about religion, but it can be applied in a lot of different aspects. But for ourselves and when we're thinking about what we want and where we want to go, we need to be very cognizant of the fact that often what we think we want is something that we want because other people want it. Yeah. Right. And mimetic desire is not inherently good. It's neither good nor bad. Right. Right. It's just a fact of life. Yeah. So what you want to do is you want to be cognizant of, okay, where are my desires coming from? If they are mimetic, that just be aware of that fact and move forward with it. Right. Uh, you you just, you just don't want to spend your life pursuing things that you're pursuing because other people think that you should pursue them. Yeah. Right? And that's that's exactly the trap that I think I got caught in the first time I understood that concept was like, well, I'm going to break the cycle. Or I'm going to like stop doing that. And that's just so fundamentally, at least I found I'm incapable of actually doing it. Just like you kind of replace one for the other in terms of whom you're, whom you're emulating. But recognizing that as a core element of how you're processing and how you're choosing what to pursue should inform the way that someone goes about picking a career path and not just following the lead. How do, how do you see people make the mistake of that, of just following, well, other people want it, so therefore I'm going to pursue some specific career? I mean, personally, I, I very dis, uh, distinctly remember this when I was in college. A lot of the people who come out of the college that I went to go to work in consulting or investment banking. And I remember when I came in my freshman year, I met a lot of people. They wanted to be scientists, doctors, all these different things, right? Things that college freshmen want to be, right? And then by the end of my sophomore year, almost everyone I knew wanted to be an investment banker or a consultant, which was weird, right? Like, if that's what you want to do and that's what you want to pursue, great. So long as you're aware of that, go pursue that, right? 
But for a lot of these people, they didn't know why they wanted to do it. They wanted to do it because they thought that anything else would be a waste of their degree. And these are the same people whom I met. I met very similar kinds of people at alumni events when the alumni would come back to campus who are miserable and openly admitted like, yeah, don't go do this. I remember meeting one alumnus of the university before I actually matriculated as a freshman. Um, And when I told him that I was going to the university, he almost scoffed at me like you're making a mistake which was weird because objectively, by all objective measures, this was a very good place to go. And I think a lot of that comes back to what you would normally identify as culture, but mimetic desire is a like very strong part of culture, Yeah. right? So you find a lot of people pursuing jobs because it's what's expected of them or what they think will be praiseworthy or they think that it's what's desirable, but they don't know why they desire it, right? Uh, and that's the point where, you know, usually quarter life crisis or midlife crisis, they end up seeing like, oh, wait, why did I pursue this in the first place? But it also speaks to why that's such an impactful memory for you is that sometimes one of the things that can break that, that pattern of emetic desire is someone basically just speaking to the alternative. So someone like, you know, the emperor's not wearing any clothes before while everyone else is just kind of nodding along because they see everyone else nodding along and, and there's that general consensus building. And so to some degree, that's kind of how I processed what you wrote as just kind of being like, hey, like we can we can run a different playbook, a different game plan to what you've just not even necessarily been fed, but just kind of picked up from the context clues of reading the other people who are also in a similar position. Because if you're in college and you're a sophomore, you're surrounded by a bunch of other sophomores who also don't have any idea about how the professional world works. So it's not even like the best source of perspective outside the context of the advisors or the other characters who don't have that experience. Yeah, exactly. And and we all have intuitions and different values and beliefs that we've developed throughout our lives. And, and you want to ask yourself, okay, are the decisions that I'm going to make in my career, do they align with what those values and beliefs are and going to evolve to be, right? Culture is weird, man. Culture is hard. People get trapped in culture very quickly. Culture is what we would call a spontaneous order. It's the product of human action, not of human design. Everyone... Everyone reinforces it, but no one designs it. It's weird. Um, on the flip side of that, the other thing that we see in culture, and another reason that I like the book, is that you see, or I see in particular, a lot of very young, sim- like similar age people going so counter to the other direction. We're, we're in an age where the entrepreneurs is kind of culturally put on more of a pedestal. It does seem more aspirational. And you see people with zero experience, zero context, trying to go out and, you know, either throw entrepreneur in the tagline of their LinkedIn or Instagram profile, or even, you know, probably make as best an effort as they know how to do, but it's just, there isn't enough context there. Like, I can't imagine even what I'm doing now, having tried to do that three years ago. So what I liked about your book is that my reading was, don't go all the way off the deep end to starting something, get the practical advice from someone who has done something like that. And even if you never go off on your own all the way to the deep end of starting something from scratch, you're right near the creation point, the genesis point, which is where a lot of the learning can happen. Yeah, a lot of knowledge is what we would call tacit knowledge, uh, meaning it really can't, you can't learn it from a LinkedIn course. You can't learn it from a college seminar. You can't read it from a book can't read it from my book. It's something that has to be picked up by working near practitioners, people who have done the things you want to do. And you will, 
for lack of a better word, essentially absorb a lot of that knowledge, right? Uh, learning a language is a lot like this. Like you can sit through tons of language classes, but it isn't until you actually go spend a couple weeks in Argentina or a couple weeks in Germany or a couple weeks in Thailand that you actually start to get the language, right? So that's a huge part to people. And when whenever you're making any next step in your career, you want to have some sort of substance backing up what that step is, right? I remember when we were going through the process of, of figuring out like what would this what will this book actually be, right? Uh, I, I bristled at the idea of like making it about a personal brand, quote unquote, although that's in the subtitle, because so many people do exactly what you're just describing. They they decide like I want to be I want to be an entrepreneur, so I'll fake it till I make it, and then it's hashtag entrepreneur Twitter and you know, all all this ridiculous stuff. Hustle porn. Uh, yeah, it, it's hustle porn. A hustle's hustle's a good word like hack. It it you know has this double meaning. It means both to like work ridiculously hard and also to like con to con people right good good extra word to have marked like that yeah the people of really good personal brands really good reputations essentially and are very well known within their industries have substance behind them and they work on gaining that substance first if you try to go and get to that next stage without developing the substance without putting in the work first without learning from the people who have actually come before you first, it ends up backfiring in a lot of cases. It makes people look silly. Yeah. One of the people with a lot of substance behind them who I see you having a degree of mimetic desire towards is Ramit Sethi. You've, you've mentioned him as a mentor and as someone that you uh, just really appreciate the information that he puts out in the world. Talk a little bit about specifically what you've learned from how he goes about his business that has influenced how you are building your own efforts between the book, your consulting, and your venture investing. Yeah, so I, I would call Ramit actually an advisor. Okay. This is something I break down in the book is you, you can have advisors, mentors, and teachers. Or, con or coaches, consultants, however you want to call teachers. Um, and for me, I, I view someone like Ramit as a teacher or as an advisor. Um, mentors are these people that you gain a lot of this tacit knowledge from. You directly work with, right? right? Or you work under in most cases. Um, and I've got mentors, but they're, they're very different people. In Ramit's case, I think he's built up a an impressive uh, systematic approach similarly with a lot of what he's done. He has a business that's largely devoted to helping other people get to the next stage in their financial lives, which largely means part of their careers as well. Um, but he's been, to the extent that he's influenced a lot of my work, he's, he's influenced understanding, one, the psychology of branding tools, whether that's a personal website, a book, anything like that. Uh, and two, the delivery mechanisms through which you can deliver this information to people. Uh, I'd never considered, for example, putting together an online course because I thought, ah, oh, courses, they seem kind of scammy. Why would I do that? Until I, I studied more of his stuff. Uh, I put together a short course last year on cold email strategies. What's flipped? Like, like I have a similar inkling, like, oh, an online course, but like there are also courses that are tremendously valuable. So how did, how did that switch happen for you? Seeing the ones that are tremendously valuable uh, and also understanding that it's like, what does what does the belief that, oh, these things seem scammy gain me, right? It was essentially, let me go out and try a high-quality one. 
and then think to myself, can I emulate a high quality one? It also seems in alignment that, that you would be pro it and at some point negative on it is interesting to me because it is like another kind of way I understand you is the disruption of the existing education system and there being much more effective alternatives that people can access and online courses seem squarely in that realm. Yeah, when you understand that there are people out there that when they're buying education, they're really, they really are buying delivery of education, yeah. delivery of knowledge, online courses... I, I can see why, you know, in the late 2000s, we thought they were going to be the, this massively disruptive market, and it looks like they weren't, although it seems like that was a false negative, and we're coming back around on that. Because a lot of people, when they buy education, they're actually buying, like, a certificate or a degree or something. They're buying a signal. Uh, but if, you, if you're good and you have good knowledge that you can actually impart to people, and you develop the skill of imparting it, which for me, it was also just developing the skills of imparting knowledge with people my the stuff that i i taught in my first course is stuff that i've been teaching to people one-on-one for years uh and it took me a long time before i felt comfortable like i know i i have enough grasp of this and how to impart it that i'm going to do that through something like a course but you know there's also this this old quotation that um is usually attributed to john Maynard Keynes that i, I really like which is you know when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Right? It's like the facts change. There are a lot better courses out there. Yeah, strong opinions loosely held. Um, we previously had Tucker Max on the podcast, and he kind of spoke about how if your whole game plan is for like the revenues from selling your book to be how you profit, how you how your business runs, that's a bad strategy, and it needs to fit into other elements. You've alluded to the coaching and the consulting. You also have another side of your life that involves investing. Can you paint a picture for people about how you know, in addition to helping an immense amount of people, as this book will inevitably do, how that fits into the career model that you've crafted for Zach Slayback? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are a couple different reasons why people typically write books, right? Um, One reason is they want to sell a ton of copies and usually get on some kind of bestsellers list, and then they can use that credibility to take them to the world stage, right? And that's actually... Ramit Sethi's approach with his first edition of I'll Teach You to Be Rich became a New York Times bestseller. That was his goal. He hit that goal. That brought him a lot more credibility to get him to the next level. Typically, if you want to do that, you'll already have to have a fairly large audience developed. Uh, Another approach that you can have for it is you can actually use it as a calling card for you to develop your audience further uh, and to develop a more captive audience, right? And that's the approach that I've taken with this book. Um, there's so much noise in the publishing market nowadays uh, that I would actually, I, I actually encourage people don't self-publish a book. Uh, now I did self-publish one a couple years ago and through a very strategic way that actually allowed me to land a literary agent, which helped me get this commercially published book. But, you know, if I see someone on, on Twitter and they say, I'm a best-selling author, it typically means, and I can get why people do this. I, I went through this phase a little bit myself. It typically means you got into the top 10 of your very small niche category for your self-published ebook on Amazon, right? And people are starting to figure that out. Yeah. So there's a lot of noise with that signal to say like, oh, I'm an author. Like, I, I hate calling myself that. Yeah. But what that means is if you can land a commercially published book contract, that carries actually a lot more weight with it. Because 
that's something that is actually a lot harder to do versus just self-publish a book. Um, so I was very happy when the contract I landed was from a well-known name that almost everyone recognizes because they see it in their K-12 textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> um, how that plays into my broader system is, so as part of the book, How to Get Ahead, I have the courses. I, I work one-on-one with a handful of people. Uh, my goal with the courses is actually to make it that I can impart a lot of that one-on-one knowledge to people without having to work one-on-one with them because my man hours work that I really spend a lot of my time working on is with this venture capital fund, 1517 fund. And I think you've spoken with... We had Michael Gibson on yeah. back in the day. Yeah, you've spoken with Michael. Um, so this all plays into each other, right? So Get Ahead Labs is essentially the part of my life where I try to distill what I've learned from working with hundreds of companies and at this point dozens of dozens if not hundreds of people one-on-one and thousands of readers with their careers right help people get to the next stage of their career cut through a lot of that bullshit that's out there cut through a lot of the stuff that they're taught that's wrong that's taught by like their guidance counselors and by their HR people and then if I can feed them into fantastic high-growing companies as well, I've got a portfolio of those that I'm trying to help all the time, that I'm trying to help hire, that I'm trying to help identify great talent, that I'm trying to help those teams get to the next level as well. And that remains a constraint or a challenge for those startups. You know, okay, we have the idea, we have some product market fit, we just got some capital, and yet there's still the constraint of like, how do we feed the proper talent into this that has the framework? I think that the main reason why high opportunity companies fail. It might not be the main reason, but it is a very, very big reason is they cannot hire good people fast enough. It is very hard for a high opportunity company in its early stages to find fantastic talent. And that's very different than fear of failure, or I'm sorry, fear of success. Like people say like, oh, they have this um, self-sabotaging mental block that stops them from getting ahead. And what you're talking about is something completely different where it's like, I'm genuinely afraid of us doubling in size because I cannot possibly find the people to like apply to the new problems that would come with that type of growth. Yeah. I mean, when you raise a round from investors, the primary place that money has to go is hiring new people. So if you're going to raise that round, your investors are going to be asking you, you know, have you hired yet for these positions? And if you can't hire for those positions, that's really hard. It's really, really hard to hit your milestones. So finding good help is hard, man. It's really, really hard. This is one of the things that, again, there's this weird dynamic. And this could be like a deeper self-esteem issue that we could really get into of like social issues. There's this really weird dynamic where young professionals think that the, the deck is stacked against them in the marketplace, that they're almost obsequious towards the companies that they go to. And you should work really hard. You should work really hard and you should do really good work and you owe it to the companies that you work for that will be paying you to do good work, and you owe it to yourself to do really good work. But at the same time, the job market is a two-way street. Yep. Companies have to hire good help. And if you are good help, they will fight for the opportunity to work with you. But a lot of people, they, 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 they don't go out and they, search, they don't search for opportunities because they're afraid that they won't get them, or they're afraid that they'll be rejected, or that they're not out there. And this is just wrong. <laughs> like, for for my entire career thus far, I've had the opportunity to have 
my feet in both sides of the marketplace, right? Previously, I helped young people, many of whom were objectively unqualified for the jobs that they were applying to, get jobs at companies that needed help, right? And when you say unqualified, though, do you mean like credential wise? They were, they or were, just they were totally wise? uncredentialed. Yeah. And I think this is part of it that the HR people who are writing job descriptions are HR people who they got their jobs in like the 90s and are writing job descriptions from the 90s. A job, someone put this on Twitter the other day, and I, I've made this point before. It's really, really important. If you're a business owner listening to this, your job descriptions should look like landing pages. Yep. They should be copywriting. They should not be has experience with Microsoft Excel. Excels in a th- in a high-paced work environment, right? They should not be bureaucratic listings. Yeah. You are selling the person who is reading that job description, yes, I want to come work at this company. Amen. Right? But because of who writes the job descriptions and how we've conceived of job descriptions, a lot of people, they look at a job description, they're like, oh, I don't have two to four years of experience in this area. I'm not even going to apply. And it's like, no, 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 no. The two to four years is a heuristic for a certain type of tacit knowledge and a certain type of understanding of how the workplace works that if you have or you can gain quickly, it's negotiable. Everything in a job description is negotiable. People don't get that. So they never go out and look in the first place. So these jo- these companies, they are starving for candidates who the candidates aren't approaching them in the first place because they're afraid that the company will tell them no. And even if the company tells you no, who cares? Like, what, what have you lost by going and talking to a company in maybe a couple hours of your time? You've probably learned something from that experience in the first place. Amen. Another aspect of it, and I just want to reiterate because you basically articulated it really well, is the difference between seeing it as a one-to-one relationship, you and like the company and its job description versus the broader marketplace. Like really what you are working to do is differentiate yourself and grow at a faster rate than the rest of the potential talent that is out there. And, you know, there's all these other truisms on the other side of like, half of success is just showing up. And if you take, if you think about how, um, how ill-informed the average person is and then recognize that half the people are below that, like you actually, your competition isn't so unassailable and steep that you should be intimidated by it. It should actually be empowering to recognize that it's, it's not going to take some otherworldly Herculean effort. It's going to take a little bit extra uh, effort and mindfulness to apply to the right areas that you can have some great results. And a lot of that effort is evergreen. That is work that you do up front and it will pay you for years and years and years and years. You know, one of the core things I, I suggest to people, whether they're a reader of mine and they're on my email list and they email me, or they're one of the young people I talk to as part of 1517 Fund and they're looking for a job, is just build a personal website and blog on it occasionally. You know, you don't have to do it every single day. But the work that you do in setting that up, maybe taking an hour to set that up, that is something that somebody will be able to find for years. And that's something that sets you apart from the rest of your competition. Because the, the competition's pretty low. Yeah, the comp- competition's pretty low and it's pretty undifferentiated. So if you do a couple things at the beginning of your career, reinforce those things occasionally, right? Do some maintenance on it, essentially, and differentiate yourself along the way, you'll find out that it's pretty hard for people not to come to you. Almost every single opportunity I can think of that I have landed has come as a function of doing that. It's come as a function of signaling the the experience I've built up and 
just differentiating myself just enough from people that people will say, get me Zach Slayback. Let me talk to Zach. Oh, you should talk to Zach. Boom. I am utterly, I'm turning to the audience now. I am completely confident that anyone starting their careers can benefit very much from checking out the book, How to Get Ahead by Zach Slayback. Um, it is on sale wherever finer books are sold. And very genuinely, I wish that I could have had access to this book specifically when I was starting my career. And I think that it's going to benefit a lot of people. I think that listeners out there who might be further down the path into their own careers can still benefit from reading it and frankly would probably benefit from giving it a once over and then gifting it to the other people in their lives who are starting careers because that's also how you build the strong network that isn't constrained to a single age bracket. The, the book is largely written for anybody who is entering a new stage of their career. From my firsthand experience, it is written for people who are beginning or in the second, the, the first big transition of their career, right? So maybe they're coming out of school or they're leaving their job that they had when they first came out of school and moving on to their next job. But a lot of the people I've worked with or I've talked to, I've learned from, I've seen this same pattern repeated time and time again. Beautiful. I want to make sure that people can connect with you outside the scope of this. You have all sorts of fantastic writing on your website, newsletter, all that good stuff. What digital coordinates can we provide people? Yeah, actually, if someone's interested in the book too, they just go to zackslayback.com forward slash book. Uh, you can get a sample of the book there and you also get links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. Uh, that would also have someone join my email list as well so they can contact me there i read every single reply uh, i correspond with my email list readers all the time uh, the other place would be twitter if, if you want to see my occasional musings uh, which run from twitter musings around careers to things like that i noticed today the only time i've ever bought stamps is to send money to the government so the government is the original multi-level marketing scheme where you have to buy something from them in order to give them money so those are the other kinds of musings that you can get on Twitter from me. So that's at Z Slayback. Beautiful. So much to learn. So little time. Uh, check out the book. We just went deep with Zach Slayback. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. We have a ton of great episodes coming on down the pipe. Next week, you're going to hear a conversation between me and my co-founder, Hannah, about what it's been like to be in business with Piper Creative for 18 months, some of the lessons we've learned, and some of the toughest times that we have experienced. We've also got some great interviews coming up after that with some of Pittsburgh's most decorated entrepreneurs. You need to hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a single episode, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.